Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. And today I'm joined by special guest Reuven Lerner. Reuven, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Jonathan. Yeah, it's great to talk to you again. It's been a long time. So before we jump in, could you give folks a little bit of a background about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I have been freelancing, consulting, whatever you want to call it, since 1995. And I started off like a lot of people in your audience, like a lot of people I know, doing software engineering projects, web development, Unix system administration, a whole slew of different things. And along the way, I was always doing a little bit of training. So companies would ask me to sort of teach their people to do what I was doing rather than doing it myself. And I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, around the time that we started talking more, um, I realized, wait, all these people I know who I really respect are telling me I should really specialize in one thing and have that, you know, that laser focused marketing statement. And I am saying, well, here are the 10 things I do. Uh, what if I were to concentrate on the one thing that I really enjoy most and where I see the biggest opportunity? And that turned out to be training in general and training in Python in particular. And so for, yeah, 10, 15 years now, I've been only doing Python training with a little bit of sort of blurry edges there with what we consider Python, such as Git. Um, and that's what I do. So let's call it two thirds, three quarters of my time is spent doing corporate training, B2B. So I go into companies and teach their people. Um, and the rest, I've had a growing B2C business as well, teaching people online using a variety of different techniques. Excellent. And th thanks for that background. So let's, so we're going to talk, oh, I'd like to talk about a lot of different training topics. Since you brought it up already, let's jump back to the sort of state of mind you were in when you were still doing development and thinking about training um, how obvious was it to you that training was the thing, if you're going to specialize in something, that that was the thing? So it took a while to realize that it was something I wanted to do. I always enjoyed it. Um, it was always fun for me. And if you're going to get up and speak in front of a group for, let's call it eight hours a day, um, and try to be an authority, you have to enjoy that and be willing to do that. And not everyone is. Um, but I also, I guess there were, there were two things I didn't really understand. Number one was... I was under the impression that if you're not actively developing software, then you can't credibly be a trainer, that you need to be doing it day after day and then sort of also doing training so you can draw on real world experience. But you don't 100% need to do that. Um, it turns out that you can have that experience in your background, but if you really go to training, you're only doing that, then that becomes your specialty. The other mistake I, I had was I didn't understand the business model of training. Um, I figured, okay, I can develop software or I can train, but it turns out that training is funded by a completely different organization within most uh, companies and one that pays better and schedules differently. So if you come in and do development, then they're going to talk to you like you're a software engineer and price you as a software engineer. But if you come in to do training, they're going to treat you like a company that does training. And most of those companies have offices and marketing people and salespeople and on and on and on. And if you're just a, a one person, the budget they've allocated to training is way higher than you can get as an individual doing software engineering. And so um, once I sort of dispelled both of these illusions for myself, like it was amazing. And let's add to that icing on the cake that with development projects, they usually can see forward a few months in advance at most. But training, most companies know what they're going to want to need six or 12 months in the future. So not only am I getting paid more and I'm not getting bug reports late at night that I have to wake up for, <laughs> yeah. but I'm suddenly like being able to schedule it myself out a year in advance with these high paying clients. So it was, it was quite like the more I did of it, the happier I was. And I did have a transition period in which I was still doing training, but I was doing it through a training company. 
And that's when I realized, oh, there's a lot of demand for this. I should just do this on my own. Well, that's a perfect segue into where do you get leads from? But before we go there, I wanted to call out, you said it pays better. I'm sure a lot of people listening want to know more about that. Would you say that, like, on what basis would you say it pays better? Because I don't, I mean, I know people are who are doing six-figure, half-million, million-dollar software projects. I don't think you're getting paid that much for a training gig. So when you say pays better, how do you measure that? So first of all, it's compared with what what I was getting. So it could be like different people get different amounts. And especially if they're applying your techniques, they can do very well for themselves. No, no doubt about it. That said, um, uh, and, and there's a reason why I don't have prices on my website, which is that I price differently for different locales. So I know what I can get away with in Israel, where I live and work most of the time, but I can charge more in Israel. I, I'm sorry, I can charge more in Europe. And I can charge even more in the U.S. So in Israel, I typically charge about $2,500 a day for my training. Um, but in the U.S., I'm now charging $10,000 a day for my training. It's exactly the same product. Um, but like basically different locales have different expectations for what is considered a normal training rate, or I should even say a high-end training rate. And sort of the market will bear different amounts of that high-end in different places. Got it. Cool. Okay. So let's get back to that um, being booked a year in advance. And and how do you get these leads? You know, where, where are they coming from? What are the activities that you do to, you know, show up in the market and present yourself as a credible trainer? So the first place is just repeat business. Um, that if you work with a big company, they have an almost infinite demand. So like one, I, I work with a few fortune 500 companies and, you know, to do intro Python and advanced Python, like how, how many groups of 20 can you find in those companies to do that sort of thing? A lot. Um, so that's like the first easiest, best thing. And once you get in somewhere, then you can stick with them. A lot of uh, uh, another way is the mere fact that people in high tech move around from place to place a lot. And so uh, sometimes, I mean, whenever someone calls me up and asks me about training, at some point in the conversation, I'll say, well, where did you hear about me? Um, oh, I forgot to do that at the meeting on Friday. Oh, I just realized. <laughs> I, I know that. But basically, um, it will often be, well, we told our group that we were going to be switching to Python and, and that we we're going to do training. And someone in our group said, oh, at my previous company, we had this Reuven guy come in. Why don't you call him? So I can benefit from my, like the fact that I've been in the market for a long time and the fact that people move around a lot plays to my advantage. Um, I do do some marketing as well. Uh, the biggest, most expensive thing I do is that I get a booth at the annual Python convention in the U.S. Um, can I directly draw a line between that booth and people like corporate clients? No. But can I say now that between the booth and the social media presence and all sorts of other things, people now know who I am? Yeah. Um, and there's just sort of greater awareness and greater sort of street cred. Um, I'll tell you where I don't get leads from, though. <laughs> uh, so A, I have this huge mailing list. I have like 27,000, 28,000 people on a weekly mailing list that I send to. Very, very few leads because it's seen as B2C rather than B2B. So even when I ask explicitly, hey, do you want me to come to your company? Almost nothing, almost nothing comes of that. Um, what else? Um, I mean, I know like, oh, I, I try doing cold outreach sometimes. So once every six months, I say, I'm going to do some cold outreach on LinkedIn or via email and virtual silence. And that could be because I'm bad at it. And it could be because it's just an inappropriate way to do it. Or both, like why choose? Right. Um, <laughs> so 
for someone getting started doesn't have like past customers to sort of live off the repeat business what kind of steps would you recommend people take to break into you know some space like that like uh i don't know whatever something well yeah, yeah, yeah. Just what I've got a, a Python specific question, but like, what what would you recommend? I'm assuming that it's relatively agnostic to the language versus Python specifically. But what would you say to someone who's you know maybe I don't know Laravel or PHP or whatever? So first of all, I'd say give lots of talks at conferences, meetups, wherever you can. It's like the perfect way to advertise what you do, and then beat people over the head with the fact that you do training. Right, like, don't assume that they say, "Wow, that was a great talk." Thus, I will invite them to do training. They're going to say that was a great talk, like the other great talks I've seen. So I start, and maybe I annoy people. I mean, I'm sure I annoy people, but like, I start every talk I give at a conference with, "I do Python training full time," and I end my my thing with, "You know, thanks very much. If you want me, you know, I just remember I do Python training full time. I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards." Again, can I draw a direct line between that and sales? No, but do I know that it happens? Because sometimes I'll ask people and they'll say, oh yes, we saw your talk. And and like, again, it's, it's sort of like the trailer for a movie where they've seen you get up and give a talk for 20 minutes, half an hour, 45 minutes. And so the product you're selling is speaking in front of a group and explaining things. That, that's, that's a great way to do it. Um, I've, gotten some, I've gotten some leads also from YouTube videos. I have a, a YouTube channel and some people have contacted me and said, I saw your videos. I like the way you do things. Come talk to my company. Um, but if, if, and that takes time, like both of those take time. The, the other thing you can do is call friends and colleagues and say, Hey, I know you work at such and such a company. You use the technology that I am training in. And then you can ask for a bunch of different things. That sort of depends on who they are and what the company is. If it's a small company, they'll probably know who's in charge of training. And you can say, can you like, can we maybe have a conference call, you and me and the training manager? And training manager is this generic term I use to describe whoever is in charge of that pot of money. Um, can we talk about what your needs are and whether you, know, you need them fulfilled at all? Um, in big companies, they have no idea who these training managers are. And I fall into this trap all the time. I'm like, hey, can you tell me who does training? And they're like, I, I don't know who does that. Like they see that email address when they're invited to go to a course. And otherwise, this person could live on the moon for all they know. And so then it's a matter of like, well, can I talk to your manager maybe? Like, can we figure out what, the, like, you, and, and your, your friend or colleague will have a good sense maybe, hopefully, of how to get you in. And you have enough of those conversations, something will hopefully happen. But it's definitely a numbers game and it's frustrating for sure. Yeah. All right. and, and you mentioned also uh, working through a training company. Is that still a viable path for people or would you skip that step? The answer, as always with me, is yes and no. Um, so the good news with a training company is they do all the marketing for you, right? So they have all these leads. They know what's necessary. Uh, th like They're great on that front. And they can fill your schedule. And I'd say that's a great place to start. So what's, what's the problem with it? There are two basic problems. Number one is they'll take half or more of the money, which might be a reasonable trade-off if you're starting off and you want to get your name out and you want to get more practice. The other problem, and this is the bigger one actually, is they will often sign you on a very draconian non-compete. Um, and then it, like, then basically you say, well, I'm gonna strike it on my own. I'll just call all those companies that I was working with and I'll say, do it with me and not with them. Um, and I don't know, would you get sued? Depends, do you wanna get sued? Like, like how much these things will be enforced? How much can be traceable? Big, big questions. Um, I was very fortunate that the training company I worked with completely and utterly forgot to sign me on such a non-compete. 
And I realized this and was not about to tell them because I'd sort of planned at some point to go back to doing it on my own. Um, at the same time, there's so many companies in the world, even if you don't compete, like the non-compete can be, you can't go to anyone that you worked with or that's on their mailing list. That latter one is a, a, like a deal breaker. But if you say, I agree to non-compete with anyone I work for, there's still a, a world of opportunities for you outside of that. Mm. Yep. Yeah. It's a sort of, you know, a little bit of a deal with the devil, especially with the, like, I know it's like a long road. You'd probably need a lot of runway to get it started on your own. And, and, and if you don't feel like if you're, if you like the idea of training, but you don't have a ton of experience with it, then yeah, there's some definite trade-offs there. Uh, the thing that keeps sort of looping around in my mind is the, the importance of repeat business to your current business. And the fact that that would be probably, probably in most cases, not an option. You know, you, you wouldn't be able to have repeat business. It's like, it's like, because with development, I've, I found that there was some repeat business, but at least the stuff I did, it was like, they had a huge project, you came in and did it, and they didn't need another huge project for a long time. So if they needed anything, it was like garbage support type stuff that I didn't want to do anyway. So I didn't really find that there was that much repeat business when you were building like big software projects. Of course, sometimes you'd get a whale who basically wanted to use you like an employee and would pay you for the rest of your life a not so great amount of money, but I suppose that's a different story. But any okay, so so that's awesome. Some really good uh, tips there. It's I'm, I'm at, not I guess I'm not really surprised, but it was interesting to hear you say that the mailing list functions in a much more B2C fashion. And then it, the people on the list, they're really not these mysterious training managers from the moon. Um, but let's look back to that because I want to I touch on Python specifically. So, so how often does it change? It feels like Python, I'm not a Python person, but it falls into that category of stuff. I, it's like that. It's the same category of when I was learning stuff. Python was one of the ones that one of the sort of like, like middleware languages like PHP and Ruby. And it was kind of like in that conversation. So it's been around for a while is my point. Um, do you find that it's a lot of effort to keep up with changes in the language or is it super stable and that hardly ever happens? So your, your, your curriculum is really evergreen like how much work goes into keeping it up to date and, and, and maybe, you know, and I noticed the, I don't know what pandas is, but I noticed you're talking about it a lot in the, so like, what can you tell us in terms of like keeping your material current? How much work is that? You are one of the first people, if not the first to realize, wait, these things don't change that often. <laughs> and that's <laughs> right. Cause people are constantly saying to me, wow, how do you keep up with all the changes? And the answer is it doesn't change that fast or that much. So like, and, and like, if you're sort of steeped in that ecosystem, then you see the changes happening slowly, but surely. And so what happens is, you know, we come with a new version of Python once a year. So six months in advance, I see, oh, okay, these are the things that are gonna be added to the language. And it's usually not something essential um, or big. If it is, so I add a mention of it in my course. Um, but most of the time I can even ignore it or spend time learning it. Um, the other thing is that I've started offering, like, so I have my regular courses and they're one day to four days long. Um, and a few years ago, one of my clients uh, at the beginning of the pandemic said to me, look, people are on screens all day. They don't wanna do full day courses anymore online. Um, can we do something that's shorter? And so that was my introduction to what I now call micro courses, which are 90 minutes long on a whole variety of topics. And so new things that are added to Python that I think will be interesting, I just create a new micro course. And then I say to my clients, 
hey, you wanna learn this? I've got a new product for you that talks about just that. And then I don't even have to touch my original base course very much where I can like mention it as, a, as an aside. Pandas evolves a little faster. Um, so I have to keep up on it a little more, but again, like, I mean, I also, I, I, I sort of, you know, <laughs> I do a little bit of CYA at the beginning of my Pandas courses where I say, you know, guys, Pandas is so incredibly huge. Every time I teach, I discover there's some option I didn't know about. So I'm sure you're going to show me something that I didn't know. And sure enough, like two days into the course, someone says, well, why didn't you use X? I'm like, ha, ah, there's the, you know, there's, there's the <laughs> there proof. <it> is. <laughs> and next time I teach it. I know to use the X. <laughs> so like they're helping me learn it, uh, uh, you know, along with everything that I try to do. Cool. And and those micro courses are real time, but, or, or are they yes. recorded? Okay. So, um, does, so you reach back out to, to past clients and you're like, Hey, there's this new thing. I've got a 90 minute micro course on it. Uh, what's, I guess this is a super tactical question, but like what happens next? I mean, are you, you know, have you already gone through some some sort of hoop jumping to get into their air quotes, you know, giant pay uh, accounts payable system and, you know, approved vendor and all of that stuff. And and then this is just no big deal. Like like your buyer just, I don't know, swipes a credit card on your website and and a scheduler shows up. Like what happens after somebody says, oh, great idea. Let's do that. That is a fantastic question. So. First of all, yeah, the jumping through the hoops to be an approved vendor, it's annoying. It's definitely annoying. Um, I just, as part of my cold outreach, I actually uh, reached out to a company like this guy and I got a response. And the response was, are you an approved vendor for our company? And I said, no, but I, I'm an approved vendor for lots of Fortune 500 companies. I'm not worried I can do it. He's like, no, no, I'm forbidden from talking to you unless you're an approved vendor. And I said, can you tell me who I go to? He said, no, I have no idea. So... <laughs> So that was a little annoying, uh, wow. to say the least. But like, once you're in their their system, then it's easy. Then like, they usually do a purchase order. So so let's let's go through it. Like, I, I've uh, I've mostly done these micro courses with one big vendor where they um, buy a course or they put it in their system, and it's on condition. It's condition that they can find at least ten people to take it. So the micro courses actually are more likely to happen because it's a lower cost, easier to schedule. So more people are likely to take it and it's more likely to happen. My four day courses actually from them have been canceled quite a bit more lately. And we'll talk about that in a bit. It's like what's happened over the last year or two. Um, and that's one of the big changes. So I, so I say to them, take this day, fill in with, with whatever micro courses you want. They do that. They publicize on their internal system. If enough people show up or enough people sign up for it, they tell me two weeks in advance, yes, this is really happening. And then once a quarter, I send them an invoice for all the courses that actually happen using their invoicing system. Um, other companies, they just sort of say, yes, we, we're, we're sure that we're going to be able to do this. Or it's like I just I just met with a, a group in Friday on New, uh, on Friday in New York where it's their people in their group who are going to be doing this, and so they're like, yeah, this this is happening. So even though they don't have a purchase order in hand, and then how do I bill? So usually after the course, I send them an invoice, and different companies have different crazy ways of doing it. Sometimes you just send them an email invoice. Sometimes you have to do it in their own internal system. One company is like, oh yeah, you have to send us a paper invoice to our PO box in Tel Aviv. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And I promise you, this is a company you have heard of. Um, like <laughs> really and truly, like it is mind boggling that they make me like schedule an appointment at the post office to send the registered mail. Um, but like, whatever. <laughs> so so everyone's a little different. And then they usually pay um, uh, um, a month or two later, depending on things. 
Um, this company I met with in New York said to me, so how do you do payment? Do you, is 50% upfront and 50% after fine with you? I was like, sure thing. Thinking to myself, ka-ching, I get it early. <laughs> I'm a little bit surprised to hear that you get paid after the fact, especially when things, when there's travel involved and there are, um, it sounds like uh, it's not uncommon for things to get canceled and that they wouldn't know until, you know, two weeks in advance. That seems kind of tight. Is there, what, what is, how does that all work? So my bet has basically been that most courses will happen. And over the years, that's been true. Lately, that has been changing. Lately, as companies have been tightening their belts and reducing their budgets for things, they've been more likely to cancel. And that has been frustrating for sure. But for a few years now, you know, what one course a quarter would be canceled maybe. And I'd say, okay, you know, free day, I get to do something else. Um, you know, what happens three weeks out of the month, you start to, you start to say, hmm, this is not good. Um, but but usually, I, I'm again, if I have enough different clients doing enough different courses, then it'll sort of balance itself out. Um, how does the and getting paid do, after the fact? I, yeah. I can't imagine like getting paid from them in advance because of the volatility, and that's just the way they're set up. So I'm used to being paid, you know, net plus thirty, net plus sixty, and okay, yeah, whatever. I'm sorry, you're you're gonna say something. Yeah. So, but. Uh how does travel work? So, you know, you just went to New York, like what if you have a free day in New York because they canceled or you have a free day where you eat the plane tickets or like what, how does the, how does the, cause I know people are going to be wondering like, wait, what about the travel? Okay. So, so this particular travel was, I went to see my parents for the first time in like a year or six months, whatever it was. Um, but because I was also meeting with a client, hey, my company can pay for it because it was a business trip. Um, so as long as I can sort of rope some work in there, uh, then, then, it's, then it's nice. So, and I basically told this client, hey, I'm going to be in New York. Do you want to meet in person as opposed to just on Zoom? So that worked out. But how does travel normally work? The answer is, of course, it depends. So one of my clients, when I was doing a lot of flying to do stuff with them, they had a, a budget that they said, you buy the tickets, you go to the hotel, you do whatever you want, and this is what we will pay for up to the ceiling for whatever you want. Um, another client that did the same thing, right? We're basically, and we had to negotiate a little bit because they were in San Jose. And so from Israel to San Jose, it was an expensive ticket. And, and I said to them, well, you know, I only fly business, uh, which is nonsense. Uh, but like, uh, <laughs> but if you say it very authoritatively, they might even believe it. Um, and they said, well, that's really expensive from, from Tel Aviv to San Francisco. I said, well, I, I'd be willing to go to like, you know, premium uh, uh, coach, premium economy. They're like, okay, we, we can do that. So like they earmarked a certain amount when I told them what the tickets would be and that was fine. Um, but I had some clients where they actually wanted to take care of the tickets. Um, where they wanted to buy them, they want to do the hotels, and then they could go with their preferred vendors and so forth. And that, you know, that's fine with me, more or less. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it doesn't really have, so if, if you were scheduled to go to San Francisco from Tel Aviv, and it got canceled, it would be, you wouldn't be eating the travel, like, they, you wouldn't have already purchased, like, plane tickets and have a deposit in a hotel or whatever. You know, I never thought about that. I think that anytime I was going to travel, we all sort of agreed it was happening. Like I own, like they would confirm, yes, this is happening. And then I would buy the tickets. Like, I don't think there was ever a danger. Wow. I really never thought about it. I don't think there was ever a danger of I'd get stuck holding the bag for the travel in the hotel. Um, 
although although I do tend to get hotel rooms on hotels.com with the like cancel free cancellation just in case. And since the start of the pandemic, my wife and I have decided like we are willing to pay a little extra to have the refundable tickets and um uh and direct flights as much as possible. I mean, especially since I had a horrible, horrible set of flights going to Salt Lake City for PyCon last year, where like I missed all of my connections and it was just like abysmal. So yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So what has changed um in the past, you know, year, two years? And do you think that the changes are more or less permanent or uh that it's a phase? What's the what's the word on the street? I think there are a lot of changes. They're definitely, I'll explain them in a moment. I think many of them are going to be permanent, but the jury is still out on a lot of them. So, so first of all, um, companies are, as I said, tightening their belts. And one of the first places they do that is with training. So, and they'll do that in a variety of ways. They'll just cut the training budget or they'll um, cut the budget that each individual person has to spend on training. Because at a lot of these companies, they say, hey, you have $2,000 to use for you know self-improvement. Um, and if they cut to the $1,500, you know, bad news for expensive trainings. Or it used to be, let's say that you could do training, you know, you could join a, a class for $1,000 and not ask your manager. And now that's going down to $500 and the managers are saying, no way, we're not going to allow this because we need to, you know, crank out a new product. So there's like more restrictions on that happening from their side. Um, with me, they also start saying, like I, I got email from one of my clients a few, like two weeks ago, three weeks ago saying, well, you were going to charge us $10,000 for this four day course. Um, we don't have the minimum 10 people to start it. We only have seven people. So how about you knock off 30% from your price? And if we get more people, um, then we'll up the price. And by the way, this is a one-time only thing. We will never do this again. I turned to my wife and said, if I agree to this, it will happen every time, like from now until my, the end of my relationship. So I said to them, no, let's just reschedule for a few months from now. And they were okay with that. Totally agree. I to completely agree. It's like teaching them to haggle. Right, right, right. Exactly. Um, the other thing that has changed is I think the flying to different places is, is basically dead for now. Um, because these companies have seen that they can, A, spend much less. They don't have to fly me in. And they don't have to fly their employees. And sometimes like I would teach in London or in Brussels. And they would bring people in. And they, they have to pull up their own employees and expense accounts and all that. And they're like, okay, so WebEx is half as effective, but it's 5% of the cost. Who cares? Um, and so between that and they've started using, uh, what is it called, Pluralsight more. They're, they're really looking at the bottom line rather than the pedagogy um, and, and, and the ROI. Um, so I have to definitely like say, look, I'm, I'm really doing more. This is not uh, you know, the cool of Pluralsight, this is highly interactive with lots of labs and I give good explanations, um, but it's harder. It's definitely harder than it was even with established clients and some of them. So one company I've worked with for several years now that is probably getting like $100,000 a year from over the last few years. So in September, they said, listen, our budget's been cut. Um, we're not going to do any courses in Q4. I said, okay, I understand. And especially then, like I knew they sold a lot to China, like the Biden administration's sanctions on China, like in the chip industry in particular, were going to be hard for them. I was like, okay, I get it. So I emailed them mid-December and said, so how about Q1 of next month? I got a call back from the training manager saying, actually, next Thursday is my last day. The entire training department has been fired. And if and when we ever do training again, it'll be run through our central location headquarters in Silicon Valley. 
But she said, I don't know if and when that'll even happen. So that was, first of all, I felt terrible for her, right? Like, but second of all, that was, I think, I think there are gonna be companies that do that, that are just gonna say, you know what? It's it's not worth it. And so there'll be, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be sort of uh, looking, looking at a smaller number of potential clients. That I think is gonna change. That I think in a year or two, we'll come back because they're gonna realize, wait, like we can't do everything through YouTube and plural site. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's 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 all been surprising and a little hard. Um, but again, having a whole bunch of different clients and a whole bunch of things, and truth be told, my B two C stuff has definitely helped. Mm, let's get there in a second. Um, you you mentioned something along the way there about you know, oh, this was for ten students for ten thousand. It's only going to be seven students. So how about seven thousand? Um, how is your pricing based on? a butt in a seat, you know, headcount, or is it more like up to 10 people, up to 20 people? Do you have a limit of how many people you can handle in person versus in a remote situation? Curious about, curious about like how people would think about pricing, pricing themselves if they were going to start doing training, you know, is it like a day thing for unlimited number of people or like, what are the different constraints? So the answer is, of course, yes. Different people do it in different ways. Um, so it's the two most common ways to price training are per person and per day. Um, and per person, as you said, it's like number of people in seats. And then you have to say minimum of X number of people. Um, I prefer to do per day. And then it's up to them to find that minimum or they cancel, as I've discovered. Um, and then I set a maximum. And so my maximum is actually a little different per country. In Israel, I say it's 16 and everywhere else I say it's 20. And that's because Israelis tend to be very loud and ask lots of questions. By the way, that is, I'm, I'm convinced one of my like corporate like secrets of success, because after teaching in Israel, the same class several times, I know what questions people will ask. Like I'm prepared. And so I can go, it's like the you know, debate prep for politicians. You get like the hardest questions there. And so I'm, I'm ready for the rest of the world. And people sometimes say, how did you know we were going to ask that next? I'm like, well, <laughs> your, your colleagues in Israel uh, prepped prep me. Um, <laughs> and so for a long time, I would say, I don't take, so so outside of Israel, I would say maximum of 20. And they'd say, really, we can't do more? I'd say, nope, nope, that's it. And then I realized, wait, I'm being dumb. So I say to them, I really don't want more than 20. But if you really insist, it's an extra call $1,000 per person to participate. And so some companies are like, great, we'll just add a bunch of people because uh, they don't care. And I say, look, I'm, I'm telling you right now, I pride myself on individual attention and asking questions and you are hurting the uh, uh, sort of educational um, outcomes, but I'll do it if you really want. Usually they end up doing like no more than five more people. And let's be frank, online with WebEx, um, most people aren't participating anyway. And that's basically like easy cash for me. Um, much as I wish they would turn their cameras on yeah. They would participate and they would make it harder, but it's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what about the difference between, so like, so like in person and I've, I've actually done, uh, certainly not full time, but I've done, uh, many in-person trainings back when I was doing FileMaker, uh, super different subject, but you know, that, that experience is very, it's a very unique kind of experience standing up in front of people in a room and, presenting the material and when they're doing the exercises you're sort of walking around over their shoulder if they raise hands you can like it's really good it's the best it's like the best way to do it for sure so it's in one sense it's easier because you're not fiddling around trying to like get a sense of like where people are and putting them I, I don't even know how to do it like do breakout rooms or one-on-one -on -one people in a group setting I don't know how to, it's like it seems very complicated to me and not that effective compared to in person that said, 
flying there, dealing with all of the, you know, if you're not a huge fan of travel, but even if you are, like travel is a lot of work. It's a lot of time. If nothing else, it's a lot of time out of your schedule. So it's, so you, depending on how you're labeling work, flying to someplace and presenting in person is a lot of work to get there and get home, but it's a lighter lift, in my opinion, when you're actually teaching and then versus you know, online where it's much harder to actually teach it, but you're in your jammies, you know, so you don't have to, you don't have to do any of that stuff. So do you, so I guess a bunch of questions, actually, do you find that clients expect in person to be more expensive or do they not even bring that up? Are they just like, you know, if they, if you said, well, it'll be 10,000 a day in San Francisco and they're like, well, how about we do it over zoom and we only pay you 5,000 a day or did that, does that just not even come up? It only came with one client where, where like I've been teaching with them for a while, this big company. And I started off doing it in Israel. And then I started like charging them more when I went on site in Europe. And at some point, some manager looked at this and they were like, why are we paying Ruben like four times as much just because he's like there? That's ridiculous. Um, even though they had told me that was okay. Like it explicitly okayed this budgeting and told me how much their people make. Um, and that was the end more or less. I mean, we negotiated some amount that was between the two for me to go in person, but it was the beginning of the end for the in-person and the pandemic killed it completely. And I even spoke to one of the managers there and she she repeated that, like, why should we pay you so much more to come here in person? So I, I, I now say like, if it's an American client, I say, it doesn't matter whether I come in person or I do it online, I'm gonna charge you the same amount. Uh, except for the like travel expenses. And I say, I think it is more worthwhile for me to do it in person. You will get more out of it, even though, yes, you're paying for my travel expenses and we have to do it several days in a row. And if we're doing it online, then we can do this jigsaw puzzle of half a day here, or a day there, um, which is very convenient for many people. But it's a trade-off, right? It's it's it's, it's a trade-off. And um, I would rather travel and be there in person for that magical in-person experience that everyone will get more out of. Um, but I think that's going to be pretty rare over the next day or uh, over the next year or two. Even here in Israel, um, like a bunch of my clients have said, well, let's just do it online because we have three different locations. And it's not like Israel is such a big country, like with three locations, and this way people can be at home or be wherever. There's definitely, definitely, though, the convenience of I can finish breakfast at 8.59 and at 9.00 turn on, hi, everyone, like welcome to class. They don't have to see like my my like oatmeal bowl uh, in front of the screen. <laughs> Excellent. Um, okay, so let's, we've talked about B2C a little bit, let's pivot into that. So I guess let's start with, from a strategic standpoint, like why, why start doing B2C? And well, let's define that. So B2C is a uh, B2B is what we've been talking about. So selling to these big companies, um, it's sort of a lot of hoops, it's a long sales cycle. But once you get in, you're probably in there for a long time. Um, and that B2C, is where the student themselves is paying, right? Like, is that how you would define it in this case? So they're deciding yes. it's their credit card. They're not, they're, they're not asking someone to approve it or anything. They're just like, I want to learn pandas or whatever. And okay. So what, so that I'm going to guess that that's like a lot of little purchases instead of fewer, bigger purchases, the B2B stuff. So what made you think, oh, I should start doing this? What was the what was the concept there? I think I just saw an opportunity, and I've probably been doing this for, I don't know, four or five years already, where I started to like record some of my courses. I said, I, I already do this at companies. I feel it's pretty smooth. What if I were to record it and then sell it? 
right? And I think part of it was like, oh, people are making millions of dollars selling courses online. I can do that too. Um, and that's all true, but it requires a completely different mindset, completely different marketing, completely different everything that I'm still like learning. Um, I, I use Podia uh, as my platform. And I spoke to the head of marketing there at some point. This was probably like a year or two ago when I really needed to like improve my marketing. I was looking at him to get some ideas. And he told me I was in the top 10% of people on their platform selling. But he said the difference between like the top 10% and the top 2% is still massive. And so that's like the gap that I'm trying to fit now. The thing is over time, I also realized, okay, yes, like there's way more opportunity to make more with less like less effort, because if I get the marketing running on automatic, on automatic, like for easily, then the money will just keep coming in. I don't know if calling it passive income is really like accurate, but it's more passive. Um, so I now have more or less, not exactly, but more or less full versions of my intro Python course and my advanced Python course and my pandas course available for purchase, which has, by the way, given me some flexibility with B2B as well where if a company wants to buy it and I say, well, I'm not available then or for whatever I can say, but you can buy my uh, recorded version. And if you want to fill in with some interactions, we can like, you can buy some Q and A sessions with me. Um, like you know, we sort of mix it around. The thing is I now see as B2B stuff is becoming more difficult. And as people are interested in learning Python and upskilling that this is a real opportunity for me, that if I get the marketing right, there are, literally millions of people out there who see Python, and I don't think wrongly, as a chance to get a better career, and I can be a part of that. So um, so I, I've done a few things. Like in addition to my regular courses, which I've recorded, I've started doing an online bootcamp, which is a high ticket item. It's $6,000 per person, like for four months. I'm doing the second cohort now. It's a delight because I can finally teach things the way I want to teach them over time, in depth. Oh, it's amazing. And I'm going to be starting a paid newsletter uh, in about a month on Substack that I think will be cheap, but to a lot of people. And I'm I'm seeing, I'm experimenting what works best in yep. what way. Uh, was there any concern that having the your full courses available on Podia would would uh, eat into your normal B two B live trainings, or do they not normally see those things as comparable? They don't, they usually don't see this comparable. And I, I sometimes like if a company starts hesitating, I'll say, well, look, there, there is another option. Um, you can do these, you know, if, if the scheduling is a problem, the budget is a problem, then maybe you'll just be interested. Or if, or if you don't like, you only have two people who want to do it, that's not worth bringing me and want to just buy my recorded courses. And sometimes they'll be like, oh, that's a good idea. And they'll do that. Um, but sometimes they'll say, oh, no, no, we, we really want the, the, in, like, we really want the interaction. So they see it. It's almost like, uh, you know, uh, uh, was it price anchoring? Where it's like pedagogic anchoring, like you know, well, we don't want to that inferior kind of class. We're going to go for the the you know the Rolex. Um, at the same time, like no, so I, I think most of the time it's like not not the same people. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So what's the? I mean, yeah, you said you have you know twenty five thousand big mailing list. Uh, yeah, you know, and have you found that that is useful in the b2c realm like yes you, okay so it's not it's not that because i know you've had you've had you know remember the the learn chinese mailing list or whatever you had like these you, you have this yes knack for creating giant mailing lists um so monet but monetizing it is uh it wasn't working with b2b but you found that it is effective with b2c more so yeah so i've gotten better at it 
for sure. And I'm still learning, but having this, you know, mailing list at my disposal to do stuff is useful. So uh, about two weeks ago, I said, okay, I've gotten a lot of cancellations this month. What's something that I can do with, you know, close to zero effort that will fill in a gap in the market? And let me try to experiment with something new. So I said, well, I have a survey that people fill out when they join my mailing list. Not everyone fills it out, but consistently people say that the thing that frustrates them the most in Python, if they're a beginner, is objects. And I know from experience that functions also cause the problem. So I set up three paid uh, 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 Zoom webinars, and I, um, you know, one functions for newbies, and then objects for newbies in two different parts. And I'm going to do them starting like a week from today or like Sunday of next week, and then three consecutive Sundays. And now at the top of my mailing list, when you get it, it says like uh, today's like literally the issue that's going out today says don't forget Sunday of next week I'm doing functions for newbies and I can see as it hits different time zones I'm getting people to sign up. Um, is it going to be perfect? Is it going to make me you know fifty thousand dollars? No. Um, is it going to make me probably two to three thousand dollars? Yeah, that's pretty good. I can't complain about that because that's roughly what I would get from the corporate training. And then yeah, so that's that's sort of one of the things I can do because I have a mailing list. Yeah, that's fun. So it, it Sunday, why Sunday? I mean, I can guess, but, but. So um, I surveyed my users mm -hmm. and I said, uh, I've done this twice in the last two years. And each time I said, what do you want to learn? Right, it's the old find out what people want to buy, then offer it to them. And they're delighted that you're offering them what they want to buy. So <laughs> I asked like, what topics Shocker. do you want to learn? Right, and I, you know, and then I said, what day would be best for you? And in both of the surveys, Sunday was overwhelmingly the favorite, overwhelmingly. It makes sense. Never would have guessed but, it. Right. I wouldn't have guessed it, but it does make sense. But I never would have guessed that. I never would have guessed a weekend. I should, though, because I can remember uh, I can remember in an in in-person training. It wasn't uncommon for people to say, like, oh, we'd love to take your training, but we can't take all the developers like off of what they're doing for two whole days in the middle of the week. Like we're on deadline or whatever. And uh, and so oh, I've so done trainings on the weekend. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they right. So they, they probably have jobs of you know, not they're probably not entrepreneurs like working for themselves. And I mean, maybe they are, but probably not. And just because that's most people aren't <laughs> that. So um, yeah, it makes total sense. But I never would have thought it. That's why I, I love stuff like that. <laughs> you know, it's like, it was like, I was so, so surprised. I also was surprised by the topics that they wanted me to teach. And, and so I've used this like these live courses, both to get some money and to fill out my uh, library of courses. So like, I didn't have anything about like a few topics that I thought were important. Excuse me. So I, um, you know, in the fall, like, like September, October, I offer them as, you know, live courses, people bought them. And then what do you know, when Black Friday comes around, there are more courses for people to choose from <laughs> and they can buy those. And then I can say my sale includes the latest things that I've gotten links to all those courses. Hmm. So you'd present it like a webinar kind of and record it and then sell the recording. That's right. That's cool. right. And it's not as good as a real interactive course. I recognize that. But for most people, most of the time, it's good enough. And uh, I think you, you've had this also, like I have a very generous refund policy. One person emailed me and said, this design patterns course was the pits. Um, I was like, okay, refund. Here you go. Um, and someone else wrote to me the same day and said, wow, I've always wanted to understand them. And this is exactly what I needed. Yeah. It's... Okay. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Yeah. Some people are just, it's funny. It's like, I, I think about it reminds me of books where people are like, what it, what are your favorite books, you know, in terms of like business books? And, I, and I'm like, you know, like a, a typical example would be like E-Myth. Like what, but the thing is, 
when I read E-Myth, it was the perfect time for me to read that book. And because I've, I've recommended it to other people and they're like, that doesn't like, what are you talking about? That book was either, it made no sense for my business. It was about a bakery like this. I don't get it, you know, but uh, it's like a timing thing. So I feel like, I feel like sometimes when people just like hate a book or a course or something, it's just, it, it's not, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. It's probably not bad. It's probably just timing there or they didn't need it. Like they're just beyond it. You know, they, they, it didn't teach them anything they learned. They needed to learn. Right. So, yeah. So don't take it personally, people. Well, so do you, what do you, so looking forward as we, I see we're getting up to time. So at looking forward, what do you see, uh, you know, are, is there a trend happening or is there something, um, you know, for, for someone, if you're going to start over, you're starting now, you're still doing development stuff and you're thinking about adding some training to your, um, you know, diversifying and adding some training to your revenue and we're dipping your toe in that space. What would you recommend to, you know, yourself or someone in that, in your shoes, um, and, and, and include We didn't really get to this, but if you could kind of loop this into the answer, when you're picking the thing that you're going to teach. So, right. I know this is kind of a big topic to end on, but you know, something like, something like, I don't know, like it seemed like JavaScript was changing every two days for a while there, you know, or, or like, certainly there's a new framework every five seconds. So, you know, that kind of stuff, like what, what should people keep in mind as they're getting started in terms of like evergreen nature of the content, but also tactically, like is B2C or B2B? What what should I consider if I was thinking B2B versus B2C? Can I do them both at once or is that insane? Yeah, doing them both at once is probably uh, too heavy of a lift um, as I've learned because I thought, oh, it's basically the same. same no, thing. no, definitely not right. the same. Right. And I think it's probably easier in many ways to do B2C. Um, I'm, and I'm saying easy because it's, I'm not saying it's easier because it's easy, but because You've got, you know, you can start a mailing list, you can go on YouTube, you can be on social media for very low amounts of money. And you can even then sign up for, you know, record a course and put it out there and just do like, so picking a, picking a niche obviously is, is a, a big topic. I was very fortunate that when I first talked to that training company that was interested in me doing stuff for them, like I'd already been training for a few years. And I said, well, I can do Ruby and Python. And they said, no one cares about Ruby, but there's tremendous demand for Python. And that short conversation changed the direction of my career because I realized, okay, I could teach either, but I'm going to go for the thing that is the bigger market. Um, I never imagined the market would be as explosively large as it is now. Like that was just ridiculous then, but it, it turns out to have been a good choice. But there's definitely a universe in which I would have gone into, let's say, PostgreSQL training for databases. Find something that's big, that's like popular, that people need to understand that you understand well. And it, uh, like that first course you do can be something very specific. One, one uh, recommendation I make to people is security. Security and your favorite topic. Everyone wants to learn about security. I'm, by the way, by no means a security expert, right? So come do security in Python as much as you want. Um, but basically, like every company now is worried about security. And if you can do it, whether it's logging in, whether it's cryptography, whether it's, you know, cyber hacking and so forth, all that stuff, just come out with one course on it. And I, 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 people will to a large degree, bit a path to your door, I think. And then you'll, and then here's a trick that I use all the time in my classes. When we go around and get names, why are you in this class? And you will see trends. You will see that a lot of people and a lot of classes, a lot of companies are there for the same reason. And that tells you what your second course should be. <laughs> and over time, you can then fill it out. Mm, nice. 
Okay, so what about one one thing I want to add in there? Uh, I think that in my experience with B two C, if you want to call it easier than B two B, is that one thing about it, a characteristic of it that is really nice, is that the feedback loops are much shorter. So you can you can create something, launch something, get feedback on it way faster than if you're trying to like work your way into corporate America or corporate world. Uh, that can be like a much longer guessing game where you're just like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but it's, I'm not getting in. But with, with B2C, you can find out, you can talk directly to your buyer slash student. Your buyer and student is the same person. So the feedback loops are way, way tighter, which is, you know, as as anybody who used to do web development in the early 90s knows, that was like slow feedback loops, or sorry, software development before the web. It was like long feedback loops is brutal. So, okay. Um, so something like... Uh yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I was just going to say that um, I have, I also do that with my mailing list. I use my mailing list to um, sort of learn topics and write them out. So like, you know, design patterns I just mentioned. So when I said I've got created a design patterns course, I wrote about it for 15 weeks or something in a row on my mailing list. And then I scooped up all the examples that I had there. Voila, I have actually a two-day course, but I only made it one day. I took the best parts of it. And then I could I could go out and, and teach that stuff and uh, and use it and know that it was in a, a more refined format and it was better. So all these things sort of play off of each other. You you shouldn't just think what course can I teach? It's how can I sort of ramp myself up to be able to teach it in you know in a good way mm, and know nice. the material better. Nice. Well, obviously we could go for hours. It's great to catch up and thanks for joining us. Where can people go to find out more about your courses, what you're offering, and what you're doing? Get on your mailing list if they're interested in Python or Pandas, whatever that is. <laughs> uh, so um, the main place to find me is at my website, learner.co.il. That's L-E-R-N-E-R .co.il. It will be hopefully changing quite radically in the next month or two as I make it more B2C friendly and have a clear listing of my courses and not have it scattered all over in my mailing list. I'll add also that I have two mailing lists, one of which is like very obvious in public, another one of which is kind of quiet. The main one is about Python and software development. I call it Better Developers. That's on my website. Somewhere hidden on my website, I also have something I call Trainer Weekly, which like no surprise, not a lot of people subscribe. And that's about the whole training industry where I break down a lot of these things and give um, sort of uh, my, my, my latest like struggles, frustrations, good news, bad news, what, what I'm going through. Um, cool. and then the new one that I'm starting on Substack will be Bamboo Weekly. Why? Because that's what pandas eat. <laughs> if you like that folks, you'll, you'll, you'll love the humor and the rest of my courses too. <laughs> Try the steak, tip your waitress. All right. That's awesome. So, I'll, uh, maybe we can dig up that hidden link and put it in the show notes, but I'll link to all that other stuff too. And. Ruben, as always, great to talk to you. Thanks for coming. My great pleasure. This is great fun. Thanks, Jonathan. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I hope you join me again next time for Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one -on -one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one -on -one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com call. 
C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.